Thank you very much, Brendan, for that very lengthy introduction. To be honest, it's all on the university pages, and I often think it says more than I want people to know about me, but <laughs> thank you very much. I think what I really want to talk about today is along the lines that Brendan has just talked about. Mm, I came back from Pakistan, I think, three, four weeks ago. Uh, that's part of my research, but also because my father, my brother, and extended family still lives there. Uh, but mainly my focus has been, at least with reference to Pakistan, for years in terms of its foreign policy, <coughs> its domestic politics, and how that's connected to foreign policy. And then how does whatever happened in Pakistan shape the region that it exists in? So today, linking to what Brendan had talked about Imran Khan, what I'm really going to talk about is how the political structure or political space in Pakistan today is dividing the country in a way that is somewhat unprecedented. The only other parallel that we could get is from 1971, which resulted in Pakistan breaking up between East Pakistan and West Pakistan. Now, I'm not saying that that's where Pakistan is heading, but in terms of the divisions in the country, I think that's a point that we need to be very aware of. So where I want to start is that the Pakistan that we talk about today, uh, this which the map shows, is actually not the Pakistan that was left by the British India. It had East Pakistan, which now is Bangladesh, and it had West Pakistan, which is now Pakistan. If we look at Pakistan's political history, one thing that stands out is that from the very beginning, politicians had a vision, at least those who fought for it, like Muhammad Ali Jinnah and Liaquat Khan, Ilama Iqbal, who originally gave the idea but wasn't there to see Pakistan become a reality. If we look at their vision and their idea of Pakistan, it was a state for Muslims, not an Islamic state, which basically meant that it would be a state where all people would have equal rights, irrespective of their religion or ethnicity. But what we find is that within two, three years, within one year, uh, Jinnah died, and then after that, uh, the first prime minister, Liaquat Ali Khan, he got uh, killed or assassinated, and the widow of the person who assassinated him has just died at the age of 106 years. So it's just a little bit on the footnote on the side because I came across and I thought, gee, you know, there's long history. But what is Pakistan's political system as it evolved after those who had founded Pakistan uh, either were sidelined or uh, weren't there anymore? I think the starting point for me is the way the institutions worked in Pakistan. When British left Indian subcontinent, they left it with a military, <coughs> which is meant to be the custodian of law and order, and they left it with a very sophisticated bureaucracy. Now that bureaucracy wasn't totally the creation of the British government because it picked up on Mughal system of running what used to be India under Mughal India. And that bureaucracy basically ruled the whole of Indian uh, 
subcontinent on behalf of the British. So when uh, British left the subcontinent and Pakistan was created, Pakistan inherited this structure. One with bureaucracy, with the military that was strong, especially in Pakistan, in West Pakistan, uh, which was seen as the martial races or the place where the martial races came from. And of course, politicians. But politicians, other than the ones who had fought for Pakistan, uh, weren't necessarily as strong. Uh, in fact, they were very caught up in, in fighting. And it's because of that, that what we see is very soon in Pakistan's history, the military became the dominant force. And that was linked to Pakistan's search for security. Because when Pakistan was created, it was militarily very weak, and the new created India, which minus Pakistan, uh, posed a threat, or Pakistan is viewed India as posing a threat. But the upshot of that was that Pakistan needed someone, some patron outside that could protect Pakistan. And because it happened just as the Cold War had started, uh, Pakistan looked towards the United States and became part of the U.S. alliance system. So the more the alliance system developed, more Pakistan participated in that, the greater the import of money, weapons, and ideas increased. And that really strengthened the military. It strengthened it to an extent that effectively from 19... I'd say 50, 51 onwards, military has been the dominant force in deciding what happens in Pakistan's political and even foreign policy. Uh, their relationship with the US, in fact, created a condition where they consistently stayed with the US. And when they felt that the US wasn't giving them the kind of support they needed, they shifted to China. And when they thought it was good for them to build both links with China and the United States, they started doing that as well. When they thought it was good for them to also engage with the Middle Eastern countries as they got more money, they followed that process as well. So when the military became very strong, what we see is that there was a sort of an alliance got established between the military and the bureaucracy, the carryovers from the British Raj days. So for a long part of Pakistan's history initially, military and bureaucracy mostly coming from Punjab, which is the northeastern province and the largest province uh, in Pakistan, but not in the United uh, Pakistan as it was before, was the one where most of the bureaucrats came from. And other than that, northwest frontier province, which now is known as Khyber Pakhtunkhwa uh, on the northwest often say British obviously didn't know how else to identify a place, so they just used the simplest expressions. But Northwest Frontier Province and Punjab were the main uh, providers of the bureaucrats and the military. And so therefore, there was a dominance that took place. Now, the question that I want to focus on is, given that this institutional dominance with bureaucracy as a subordinate partner, how did Pakistan's political structure evolve? I think one thing which is very clear is that from the very beginning, 
<clears throat> knowing that military had its own agenda and that they were the ones who were the deciding uh, agents in the country, created a situation where military was able to take over power every time it felt politicians aren't really delivering the way they think they should be delivering. Ultimately thinking in terms of how does it serve their interest as an institution but presented as interest for Pakistan. I'm not saying that there weren't threats to Pakistan's existence because obviously very large groups in India did talk about Pakistan's partition being undone and so there was this constant threat. Plus also the uh, division of opinion on Kashmir and who it should really belong to. Pakistan consistently said that because the population was predominantly Muslim, uh, even though Maharaja had uh, signed the instrument of accession with India, Kashmir should really be part of Pakistan. Again, that had a geostrategic relevance for Pakistan because the rivers that flow through Pakistan come from uh, Kashmir. But I guess what's important is that the military having strengthened its position because of its alliance with the United States acquired a position where it either intervened in politics directly, so imposition of martial law was a regular occurrence when I was growing up, or if it wasn't directly involved in politics, then it would act indirectly to tell the politicians what kind of alliances they're going to engage in. And if they felt that someone was not really listening to them, then the simple story was that that uh, group was taken out of politics. So that's the broad context that I think really gives us an understanding of where we are in Pakistan today. Because military, for a long time, as I said, military rule or martial law was quite common, so to give you a very quick idea, in 1950s, there was a military government led by uh, General Ayub, who decided he wanted to be called Field Marshal Ayub, so he became that. And then he was replaced by General Yahya, and he headed uh, Pakistan when uh, Pakistan was dismembered and Bangladesh was created. And then, of course, uh, after a while, General Zia came to power. He left, he was uh, he died in a plane crash in 88, and then in 1999, General Pervez Musharraf took over, and then he left, I think, 2008, and I, I might be slightly one year old uh, out of it, but effectively, when he left the scene, uh, it was very clear that military's apparent participation in the political scene wasn't really being looked at very favorably by the people. So what we see is from then onwards is a new trend that's emerged, that the military has tried to let others, politicians, be at the forefront while pulling the strings from behind. And effectively, it really says that you need to do what we want you to do. But other than that, military has also ensured that they dominate the foreign policy areas to the extent that they think they are related to their own interest. So, for example, Afghanistan from the 1980s onwards has been really determined by the military in Pakistan, how it should be treated. Uh, Kashmir from the word go has always been the, under the control of the military. Uh, United States, again, China as well, 
and more recently, especially from 80s onwards, Pakistan's relationship with two major Gulf states, Emirates and Saudi Arabia, and less so Qatar, but also to some extent, because of their money, it's the Pakistan military decides how to relate to them. So while Pakistan has foreign office, uh, it's not really as significant an actor in the foreign policy making as uh, the military. So the picture that, at least for me, that emerges is that military dominates the political scene, but from behind, and military calls the shots on the foreign policy, again, from behind, but everyone knows that that's the story. So how does it lead to today's Pakistan? Basically, I can go back to lots of history, but let's start with Imran Khan uh, and his rise to power. Uh, in the early 1990s, after Imran Khan had won the World Cup, not him alone, but that's how it was presented, uh, and being a, that good-looking, dashing sort of personality that he thinks he still is, uh, uh, he attracted attention. And it's at that time that some military uh, officials retired. They, in fact, encouraged him and worked with him to set up Pakistan Tehreek-e Insaf, or PTI. Again, a bit on the side, uh, my family home uh, is on the main road that it's on. Imran Khan opened his office at the end of that road. And it was quite sort of strange for all of us to say, Imran Khan, who's a cricketer, he wants to get into politics, to the extent that one day my lovely mother, she stopped her car, got out, Imran was apparently there, and basically blasted him for even thinking that he could come into politics. But he did come into politics. The stories that we have heard is that even the party manifesto was partially drafted with the help of military, retired military generals. So Imran Khan was presented and developed as an alternative to the existing political leadership in Pakistan, which at that time was mainly Pakistan People's Party, uh, which was established by uh, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto and then later on taken over by Benazir Bhutto, who was killed in 2007, and then her husband, and then now even her son. So PPP uh, and PMLN, Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz Group. Uh, basically, Pakistan Muslim League carried over from the United India history as Muslim League. It was the descendant of that party. And then General Ziaul Haq revived it. And Nawaz Sharif as being his protege actually became very strong. So in the 1990s, politics was between Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif. And so it's at that time, because they were playing uh, sort of the one would go out and uh, other one would come in and then they'll be kicked out and the other one would come in, all with the militaries operating at the background. But at that time, this new force was developed. For a long time, Iran Khan actually didn't manage to get any traction, but there were times when he only got one or two seats in the parliament, and then there were times that he was promised, for example, by uh, at least that's what uh, some people have said by General uh, Musharraf, that he could be the prime minister, but it turned out that he wasn't the prime minister and he got very angry about that. 
but gradually he started <coughs> building his support base. Again, not because he was able to command that attention from people, but because they were behind the scene maneuvers that brought him to the surface. What we see is that before this current election, before 2018, uh, in uh, 2013, because of that, Imran Khan did manage to win at least significant numbers and form a provincial government, which is like our state government in what used to be Northwest Frontier Province and now is KPK. And to give him due or to give PTI the due, they introduced reforms, they introduced policies that really helped ordinary people. For example, health card was introduced, which meant that if you're sick, even if you're poor, you'd be able to go and get treated. So from a no, nobody in the political field, uh, by the time we come into the second decade of the new millennium, he is able to at least have presence in uh, the government, uh, in the provincial government. It's at this time that we find is that the military starts supporting him even more. But that is because by then the military leadership was getting a bit tired of policies and even the stand that was being taken by political leaders like Nawaz Sharif of asserting themselves and making decisions that they thought were in Pakistan's interest. Uh, uh, President Zadari, when he came to power, he also did similar things. And so with that, the military, I think, started feeling that they probably would lose control to the extent that they wanted. So it's at that time that what we see is that the military starts getting more and more focused on trying to find an alternative to PPP and PMLN, more so than they did before. So it's in this context that we see suddenly Imran Khan, I would say from 2009, he starts getting support. Uh, 2010 is definitely very obvious. And so I, I still remember around that our family home, one day wake, uh, waking up, going out for a drive and suddenly finding lots of banners that talked about Imran Khan. And you can't have banners because it's right very close to the main uh, parliament and the secretariat. It, you can't have those banners unless someone is willing to let you have them there. So it's not for everyone. So it was an indication that somebody was supporting him. But still, he wasn't in power until 2013 in the province. In 2018, five years after he completed his term as the leader of PTI that was strong and had formed a provincial government in uh, KPK, he again stood for elections, PTI stood for elections, and a lot of people supported him. He did get more seats, and um, I think you can check those numbers anywhere. I never sort of remember them, but effectively it wasn't sufficient for him to form a government in its own right, the PTI, or Imran Khan becoming the prime minister in his own right. It's at this time that what we see is that Imran Khan is even supported more by the military by helping him to form a coalition where people are brought in, especially to make sure that he gets that majority to be able to run the government. And PMLN, uh, its leader Nawaz Sharif, 
uh, before the 2018 elections is actually uh, disqualified from being in the parliament or practicing as a politician ever because of one job that he um, was alleged to have hidden even though he wasn't really uh, being paid for that. But effectively it was decided that he has to clear the space and so he was not there. So Imran Khan comes to power in 2018 July with the help of the military. So for a long time, <coughs> everyone talked about Imran Khan as the selected prime minister, not the elected prime minister. And to the extent that there were even talks about banning the use of this word, because it really got to Imran Khan. Again, what I want to point out is that having come to power, Imran Khan did introduce some good ideas. The idea of the health card, for example, got expanded from just KPK to the whole of Pakistan. Uh, its implementation had issues, but it definitely was introduced. Then he started linking with groups like One Foundation, a Hubert Foundation, which provides cheap housing for very poor people, and he supported that. Now, he also introduced the idea of uh, clamping down on corruption. And he tried to set it up, but the reality is that the people that had been brought into that uh, coalition, some of them were themselves known for their corrupt practices. And so effectively, he was taking a stand, he was doing things that were being undermined or were being contradicted by the type of people that he was associating with. And then, of course, he also started introducing policies or taking stand that the military wasn't very happy with, but more importantly for Pakistan, and that's where I think the change of government becomes very relevant, is that his economic policies actually weren't developed properly. He shifted between saying he didn't want to deal with IMF and then he came back and agreed to sign a deal with IMF, uh, but then he decided that the agreement that he had made with IMF for the next tranche, he wasn't going to he wasn't going to take away the subsidies because of Corona, and then also his sense that poor people needed. The upshot of that was that Pakistan's economic conditions got really bad. If I reflect on it, I think it probably was because even though he was being prepared to come to power, people who supported him and they still support him everywhere. Mm -hmm they weren't actually thinking about the structures that they would develop if they did come to power. And what is sad is that the people who have sided with him, some of them are, are the best brains. Even overseas, there are people who left their jobs to go and join him when he got elected. Now with this scene, poor people started suffering and so year before last, when I was in Pakistan, it was amazing the switch in the way poor people looked at Imran Khan. Because I think rich people or the elite, even though they are educated and they can support one side or another, it's really the ordinary people that you get to know when you go into bazaars where normally elite women don't go or only the minions go. But when you talk to those people, you actually work out that the extent of support a person has or not. It's at that time that I started listening to people who said, 
Imra, you know, main problem in our life is Imran Khan. So the level of anger about him was increasing. It's at this time that also the military, because the anger increased, they started turning against Imran Khan and they thought they need someone else. Partly also because I think he was becoming a bit more independent in the way he was running his uh, approach to the world and he was doing things vis-a-vis -vis China and America that I think military didn't want. So General Bajwa became very active in this whole space, who retired recently, but he wanted an extension. He wanted to appoint his own uh, director general for the intelligence services, or ISI, and Imran Khan didn't agree with that, so that created tension. So I can go through all these cases, but upshot of all that disagreements and the doubt that emerged in the mind of the military, but definitely the chief of army staff, General Bajwa, was that they, you can't count on Imran Khan. So remember what I said, they've used, they've used their position to run Pakistan's political system on the understanding that they shape this picture and they determine the foreign policy, but from behind. In this case, they were thinking that it isn't really working out. And so they switched their support back to PMLN and all those who were against Imran Khan. And they supported creation of this coalition, which finally overthrew Imran Khan last year, or overthrew him through a vote of no confidence, which is the first time in Pakistan's history. Now the question that I think is important for at least us to say, what could have been done at that point to prevent Pakistan from reaching the point where it is today, which is it's got $3 billion left in its foreign exchange reserves. It's maximum three or four weeks worth uh, funds to support imports. Now, there's a lot of tension in that country. Poverty is increasing and inflation rates are reaching 47% in some cases. So ordinary people can't live. So what is it that could have been done protect Pakistan or prevent Pakistan from getting to this point. I think history had given Imran Khan a chance to say he has been removed by those who selected him, but that he would establish his credentials as a true Democrat. Unfortunately, he didn't do that. What he did do was that he worked out, uh, there was all this question about is there enough support for him in the parliament? But just before the final vote of no confidence was to be passed, he actually came up with this idea that this whole drama of the vote of no confidence against him was being orchestrated by the United States. Because he had gone to, and which I think was a plain idiocy, to use a very diplomatic term, to go to Russia a day before Russia invaded Ukraine. And so he, his argument was that he was being removed because he took a stand against the US policies and the US is using PMLN or everyone who has been um, opposing him to get rid of him and they'll come back and they'll do exactly what the Americans want. 
that issue could have been totally put aside, but when the meeting was held, uh, this uh, National Assembly session was held, someone from the PTI's side stood up before the vote of no confidence could be taken and said that, here's this letter, uh, this is what it says, because this is all being orchestrated by outsiders, the United States, so that's really uh, not being fair to Pakistan, it's treason, and can we take a vote on this? And the speaker basically said no, and the court was uh, assembly was adjourned, and straight away, Imran Khan comes on the television and says that he's decided to request the president to dissolve the assemblies and hold elections. So at one level from his point of view, it was very smart because what he was saying was that he's popular enough that if elections are held, he would be brought back into power and not just with that limited support, but by larger support, possibly two-thirds majority. But I think that was an undemocratic move because you don't suddenly dissolve assemblies when it hasn't reached that time just because you are pushed out of power. Unfortunately, Imran Khan actually left the assembly with his whole PTI and moved on to the pathway of creating a narrative which had very clear lines last year, so I loved him for that because I could look at it and say, okay, that's where whatever he says fits in. It was, it was a US conspiracy. Military was collaborating with them, and military wasn't really neutral. Uh, in fact, military should have stood by him, but it didn't, and the judiciary wasn't on its side either. And there was this, politicians were being used, so the hashtag that was popularized was, imported government is not acceptable to us. That narrative that he promoted was basically that he was a victim of what happened, as opposed to people actually were not happy with the way he had been managing the economy, and that maybe he had made mistakes. I can list them, but I think let's look at the real phenomena of his narrative. As I said, last year for large part, it was a very clear narrative. Then more recently, he started shifting. So in some ways, it reminds me of the military general Zia, the leader, who was known as Chief Martial Law Administrator, CMLA. And it got to, he got to be known as CMLA stands for Cancel My Last Announcement, because he kept on shifting his mind. Imran Khan's narrative, I think, can be easily categorized as one, Cancel My Last Announcement, because he's constantly shifted as to who is responsible, why it's happening, and what people need to do. The US was the main culprit. Gradually he's come to say, you know, we are happy to deal with the US. Judiciary was collaborating with the military, and then he said, because judiciary gave decisions that were in his favor in a series of cases, then judiciary is good. And of course, military, first it was the military as an institution, and then he started gradually hon honing it down to General Bajwa, the chief of army staff, that he was the main person responsible. And to the extent that he basically mobilized people that support him to say, you have to take a stand. 
and do something. So suddenly, that whole structure that had been established where military, despite its, I think, questionable role in Pakistan politics, was at least internally unified. And outsiders didn't like military's operations in uh, or sort of meddling in the politics, but they accepted it. Suddenly, with Imran Khan focusing on the military and a few, including the PMLN, but definitely uh, Nawaz Sharif, he's shifted the uh, narrative to saying that it is one person and military, some are against him. And then he's come up with the idea that they're also targeting him, they want to get him killed. And of course, he had a, an attempt on his life. And so he's mobilized people to turn against everyone who collaborated in bringing uh, him, his government down. So one serious division that's taken place in Pakistan is in terms of how people look at military. At one level, I think, if military has been involved in politics, it needs to be criticized for that. But I think doing it in a way that has been encouraged by PTI, and there's a whole lot of people who operate on the social media where they fan this anti-military uh, narrative, it's dangerous because what it does is that military does have groups that are very supportive of Imran Khan, but military was always known for being united, disciplined. It could impact on the discipline of the military. So I think in terms of military being needed to protect Pakistan, that's a serious issue that Pakistanis have to think about. But there's another problem with, it's not just simply the Imran Khan's narrative that is creating problems. PMLN, or the current government, led by Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz Sharif, but really Prime Minister is his younger brother, Shahbaz Sharif, has initially been very quiet. Everyone, a lot of people, including me, we expected Shahbaz Sharif, who was a very good administrator in Punjab when he was the chief minister there, to repeat his performance when he becomes the prime minister. Unfortunately, at the ground level, what the Shahbaz Sharif government has done is that they have consistently taken directions from Nawaz Sharif, who is based in London. So within a few days, I think, or a week of being elected, a whole number of uh, leaders actually went to, uh, including ministers, they went to London for a week or so to get guidance from uh, Nawaz Sharif. And off and on, these visits take place. Basically, what it says is that Shahbaz Sharif is not in power. Nawaz Sharif is, but he's in London. Nawaz Sharif has been encouraging and in fact supporting his daughter, Maryam Nawaz, who now is coming up as a counter to Imran Khan's narrative. Sometimes other uh, PMLN people also contribute to that, but that narrative is now being promoted as one by PMLN, but really by Maryam Nawaz. I'll come to the colors of that narrative, but effectively because the current government has relied so much on directions from London. The problem is that the problems can't be solved. So economic issues that Pakistan uh, needs to deal with have not been dealt with. 
this guidance from London has basically meant that the f uh, former finance minister, Mifta Ismail, who started negotiating with IMF and was willing to put a stop to subsidies for electricity and gas prices and petrol prices, he was removed and another uh, minister, Dar, was sent because he was already overseas. Uh, basically, he was also disqualified and he was wanted by the Accountability Bureau. He came in, everything is forgiven, and he becomes the finance minister. Everyone expected that he was really good when Nawaz Sharif was prime minister and he'll manage uh, Pakistan's economy now. The trouble is, what nobody counted on was that while Imran Khan is promoting that narrative, he's telling the younger people that really support him, and it's 60% of the total population, with a median age of 23 years, he's telling them that you have to take a stand. These people are important, don't listen to them. So Imran Khan has really developed this great style. Every day or every second day, he's on television. He gives a speech, even though he's a former prime minister, and he calls upon everyone to stand. When he stopped uh, from giving his speeches on TV, his party organizes these grand events where people from everywhere come in. And his popularity has skyrocketed to the extent that one uh, sort of session, one um, event or one meeting that he organized or where he called everyone, it was kind of a demonstration. It, was, it went back, according to some people who went there, three kilometers. And they were standing at the edge of this three kilometers. And I said, why were you there? They said, we wanted to listen to him. So bad management on the part of the current government and Imran Khan mobilizing these people has basically created a condition that even if the policies could make sense, like reducing subsidies on electricity, Imran Khan pushes them into say, he's hitting, this group is hitting at your pockets. So people are suffering, so they need someone to blame. And so instead of thinking that it was continuation of the policies that previous governments made and then Imran Khan mistakes he made, it's continuation of that. And so somebody had to put a stop to that. They start targeting the PMLN government. They question that if anyone wants to look at the Twitter sphere, it is the great place where you can see the fight that's taking place in terms of these uh, narratives. Uh, if you say something that is anti Imran, uh, I can guarantee you that you would be uh, followed, you would be harassed until you decide that you're going to block their contact. Uh, it's happened to me a few times and I've, initially I'm thinking, I'm not that important, why are they sending it, me these things? Then it gradually worked out that when I closed one account, another account would come in and start targeting. Mainly because I, I was very clear when Imran Khan didn't take the decision of really being a Democrat uh, to say that his narrative is dividing the country, it shouldn't be done. But effectively, it's also the PMLN and their supporters, they are doing the other side. So what is the narrative that they are promoting now? They started off by saying, we are here because we want to protect Pakistan from sliding into economic chaos. 
we're not here because Americans brought us. We are here because we want to do something for the country. And we are grateful to the judiciary. And military is neutral because that's what military claims now. And we will run the country properly. But as gradually the judiciary has started issuing statements or making decisions that sometimes favor Imran Khan, then there is questions. Maryam Nawaz, Nawaz Sharif's daughter, she comes in and says, it's the judiciary, they take uh, partial decisions. So it's not really partial. And then of course, when anti-military criticism comes too strong, then they also become the defenders of the military. So that's the latest sort of scenario that's been played out. What does that do to Pakistani sense of identity and cohesion? One, it actually divides the countries along basic two lines. One is pro-PTI and the other one is pro-PMLN or PDM, the larger coalition that's removed Imran Khan. But the level of tolerance uh, that you would expect from different people is absolutely absent. It's very similar to pro and anti-Trump groups in the United States. So if you support Imran Khan, there's no way you would support uh, the, uh, the other government. If you support the PMLN, there's no way you could say that Imran Khan is right in anything. That constant tension is now being reflected in pro-Imran groups, in fact, targeting law enforcement groups. Uh, very recently, last week, again, it was all in the news. Mm, effectively, the present government, and again, they are sort of a bit hooked on doing what Imran Khan was doing. Uh, when he was in power, when he came to power, he started putting everyone in jail, and there were cases registered against people because he felt that they were not, that, that they were corrupt. And some of them really, there's some horrific stories that we've heard. Now that he's out of power, those people are out of jail or out of, out of detention. And now the present government is trying to put people that support Imran Khan and even Imran into jail. So in, as a part of that, they had registered a case which is called Tosha Khanna or Treasury case. And what that is all about is that when uh, politicians, leaders, or even senior officials, they go overseas and they're given presents or gifts, uh, they, the rule was that you could give, I think, 10% or 20% of the value to the treasury, and you could keep that. Imran Khan has been booked for a case where apparently he got very expensive watches from uh, uh, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and he paid some amount for that, which was one-tenth or one-twentieth of that. And then the stories are that his wife sold them in the market at a very high price. But that was not showed in the uh, tax returns. And so effectively, Tosha Khana case is being used to identify Imran as someone who is not honest and therefore can't qualify for being in politics ever again. It's come to the point that Imran Khan is now being, called, uh, being asked by the court to present, but Imran Khan being the one who doesn't want to lose has been refusing to go. And he's used the fact that he was uh, targeted 
you know, there was a fire a shooting against him and he hurt his leg as an evidence that, that he's being targeted and he will be assassinated. So as a result of that, he refuses to listen. The government insists on him appearing in front of the court. And as a result of that, they send uh, police to go and get him from uh, his place in Lahore. And what happens, all his protectors uh, converge to outside his house because he issues a statement, which again is very cleverly designed. It tells people that it's a jihad. Come and fight. They're going to take me. They're against me. You need to protect Pakistan. You come out. So think of the narrative that is built up that basically means now is the time if you don't protect Imran Khan, Pakistan is gone. And as a result of that, what we see is that last week there were really fisticuffs between the law enforcement groups, the police, and the supporters of Imran Khan. And a number of uh, police officials and uh, police uh, men who were sort of really doing the running, they got hurt in this process. Basically, this division has actually got shifted into a very serious situation where the state's ability to implement the decision of the uh, judiciary is also being undermined. And of course, with that, he constantly comes up and says, I'm going to be assassinated, I'm going to be assassinated, and goes to different um, uh, sources, different levels of judiciary. And what does the present government do? They say, you're a terrorist. PTI is a terrorist organization. We're going to ban you. So if there was a modicum of understanding of a political system and running it, that's really coming to an end. What is the danger? And I think I've alluded to that. One is basically it's dividing the country that's already suffering from other divisions. Inequality in Pakistan, income inequality is huge. Now, sometimes I, when I listen to people telling me, I get shocked. But just to give you a sense, uh, a rich person, the state may be close to default, but people who are rich, they've got lots of money. Uh, they could buy a wedding dress worth $25,000. And when I heard that, I thought that was obscene until my brother told me that there's some who buy it for $100,000. And he said, 25 is nothing. And so that extent of money that's being spent at the top level, and the weddings, because that's what I always ask people what's happening, those celebrations go over sometimes a month. And it happens every second day. You get people trained in how to dance, how to show off, and huge expenses, nothing spared. That's the top elite, or those who have made money through corruption or through businesses. I don't want to say everyone who's done that is corrupt, but then they're the poor people who literally don't have enough to eat. So when you have those divisions in the country, there's already a level of anger building. If you superimpose on that these parallel narratives and the ideas of how Pakistan is to be run, and whether the law enforcement agencies are to be respected at least, you create further instability. Add to that 
ethnic divisions that have already been there. In Balochistan, there's Balochistan Liberation uh, Group. Uh, there are few groups that are fighting. So they pose a threat to Pakistan security. They are being supported by external actors, and some would say India is part of that. So that's one problem. With change of government in Afghanistan, which Imran Khan thought was a great example of Taliban breaking the shackles of slavery, has actually created a condition where TTP, uh, which is a militant organization which posed a huge threat to Pakistan security in 2009 and was sort of defeated by the military, has started coming back. So the incidence of terrorism in Pakistan has suddenly increased again. So if you think about Pakistan today and say, can Pakistan afford a political system or political war of political narratives that does not provide the rule of law, that does not take into account militancy, does not take into account consistently deteriorating economic condition, can Pakistan afford that or not? I think simple answer is no. But unfortunately, the leadership isn't thinking along those lines. And one example, and then I promise I'll stop, is the floods last year. Floods happened. One third of the country was inundated with water. There's some people who still don't have places to stay in uh, southeastern province. Uh, also in Balochistan. But would you think that the people, these two sets of political leaders think about it? The government tried to address that, but neither government, but I'd say more so Imran Khan, really gave in to dealing with the situation. So effectively, the floods became a sideshow and the main show remained, those events that PTI was organizing with Imran Khan trying to tell everyone that you have to stand up and get everyone out of power. We want elections, we want elections, we want elections. I think this war of narratives has actually brought Pakistan to a very critical juncture and that's why I said it reminds me of the divisions that existed in 1971 between uh, Awami League, led by Sheikh Mujib, who led creation of independent Bangladesh, and Pakistan People's Party, led by Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. I think Pakistan was able to get out of that, but I'm not sure that if this continues, Pakistan will be able to protect itself. So there are too many ifs that I can go on, but I'll leave it there. I just think the political drama that started with the militaries direct and indirect intervention in politics has brought Pakistan to a point where politicians have lost the plot and effectively countries sliding into a very serious state of being. Thank you. Uh, have I depressed you enough? <laughs> I'll walk around. Thank you very much. Samina, and uh, I think one takeaway I, tongue-in-cheek I can say, it's uh, we've, we've moved back in time with Pakistan being ruled from London. The empire strikes back. <laughs> and if, and if uh, Imran Khan gets also told to leave the country, then we'll have both the opposition and the, the, um, 
the power behind uh, the leading party in, in, in London? Well, we don't know whether he would go to London or somewhere else. Yeah. But yeah, chances are, yeah, maybe because his first wife yeah. is there and is a, he often sort of tweets in his favor. Great. Um, I've got a few questions, but in following the tradition, I'll offer it to the floor in the first instance. Can you just introduce yourself and uh, pose your question? Thank you. Harvey Collins. I have interest there as chair of an impact investment fund that's working throughout the region. Do you, the divisions, uh, does it have a geographical element? I mean, if you look at the US, you've got the red and the blue states. So if it tears apart, is it geographically or is it a, a shredding across the board? Question. <coughs> I think they're both, should I just use that? Okay. Uh, at one level, you could say that it's geographical because KPK and Punjab are very much under PTI's control. But the reality is that it is in every part of the country. So if you looked at just the numbers, you would say KPK, uh, Gilgit Baltistan, which India claims as part of their territory, Punjab, definitely the largest part of Pakistan, supports PTI or Imran Khan. But if you look in, in each one of these situations, there are lots of people who are in other areas who support Imran Khan or oppose him. So I think that's where the problem is, that it's not a geographical split, which some people think could happen. It's actually everywhere. And that's where I think the possibility of strong civil disturbance, which one of the PTI leaders talked about civil war. I think that exists and that's a serious issue. I think even raising that becomes self-fulfilling prophecy, but that's where my fear is that you cannot tell where it would stop. With uh, Bangladesh's creation, you knew that that was the part that was going to leave. In this case, you don't know. And it may be that nobody wants to leave Pakistan, but you don't know how it would impact Pakistani state and the society itself. Thank you, it's on, is it? Um, Jim Baxter. Uh, with the tremendous power of the military behind the scenes, albeit, I, uh, I wonder to what extent do they have uh, business interests? I'm wondering any comparison with Indonesia before and Myanmar now, where the military basically has a lot of income which helps their power. What's the situation in Pakistan? Well huge business empires that military maintains. In fact, uh, there was one very well-known author, Aisha Siddiqui. She wrote a book, Military Inc. And as a result of that, her life in Pakistan became very difficult. So she's gone overseas now. But what she drew attention to, and others are drawing attention to that again, is that the military because of the historical significant role that they had, even in uh, deciding which groups can come and invest in Pakistan, military has amassed a lot of uh, economic wealth. So they have a 
an organization called Foji Foundation that basically runs uh, sort of uh, industrial sort of structures. Uh, then they occupy, and I hope I don't get booked for saying this, but they, they tend to do this thing about buying land and then establishing defense housing estates and then dividing them into different parts and then reselling it, or people buy it. And so the prices go up. So it started mostly as a phenomena during uh, General Pervez Musharraf's time. So some people even say that military has become not just simply controlling a lot of other sort of production, industrial plants, but that it's also become a real estate agent because that's where they make money. And one issue that the government currently is facing is that the caretaker government in Punjab, the largest province, uh, with a lot of good agricultural land, it's being run by someone who uh, very recently agreed to sell or allocate a lot of land of Punjab to the military. And everyone now is, those who are into conspiracy cases, they are saying that whole change of government in Punjab basically took place because they wanted this land and that land is going to the military. So yes, military is, I would say proportionately, I'll still have to check, but my sense is proportionately probably it's more, it's outreach is more in economic space than even the information military. And it consistently increases. Uh, it's also because if you go into military cantonment areas, they're really well provided for as opposed to civilian, except the areas that the defense housing uh, societies get established by the military. <laughs> they also have very high standards of services there. But yes, lots of money. And I think I better stop, otherwise I'll get booked on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, uh, Andrew Castles. The way you were ending, it sounded like with the polarization between the two major political groupings at the, mo at the moment. If that polarization is not resolved, then, as your, my colleague here said, th the military is likely to emerge. As savior of the nation, that kind of stuff. Which again, like my colleague here, reminds me of a country on the other side of the subcontinent where Myanmar, where the military fulfills the same role. And as you've just been explaining, has a huge economic interest in, in maintaining that status. So, but then it makes you look at the other countries. India, which has a political system where a dominant party maintains, which certainly keeps the military in its box. Nepal, where the military has fought 10 years of a civil war, but is essentially kept in control by the political system. So what makes the difference in the countries where the military has the power as soon as polarization emerges, as soon as, as, soon as inequity gets to the state that it does, that the military can step in? That seems to be a, almost a phenomenon that's important to the whole of the SARC region and uh, 
Pakistan probably has something to teach the world about how to maybe even prevent it or not. <laughs> I hope Pakistan does get to the point of teaching how to prevent it. I think in terms of problems between inability of the politicians to settle their issues and that creating a space for the military to come in as running the system and basically it is we're going to fix the system that's always the uh, narrative that the military has come up with that worked for a long time with this possibility of military stepping in even in Pakistan today despite all that polarization that possibility has got a lot of question marks to it because the military has said even though it isn't really uh, neutral, but it said since last year that military is neutral. You know, politicians can work it out among themselves. They won't come into it. But let's say for the sake of argument that the military does decide that, like in the past, they will come in. Would they be accepted as the arbiters as they were before, or would they be reacted to? That's where the narrative that Imran Khan has popularized, which sometimes by name has abused. And I think if I could sort of get a way of sorting out all these Twitters, uh, tweets, it would make up for a really nasty reading of how to address anyone in the public space. If you look at those tweets, it's very clear that if the military comes in, its job won't be as easy. It's a very different Pakistan today. That's where Imran Khan has really got people. But I think in that process, what he hasn't done is to guide young people who are really the mainstay of his uh, popularity, that you need to follow certain principles. He's actually not saying be more democratic. So in that process, if the military comes in, people won't just say the, they don't like the military and it's all only on democracy. They'll say military has taken out our good sort of leaders. So I think first thing, Pakistan's picture today is not the same as in the past. What Pakistan does show the world is that if you let the politicians, if, if you let military institutions run the system for a long time and if politicians are willing to benefit from that system and then turn against that when it doesn't suit them then you create more instability so it's effectively what i'm really saying is pmln pti and every other political party has benefited from patronage from the military and they've used it. But now because Imran Khan has promoted this idea of the military being the culprit, or at least one person, he might be undermining that previous trend. So I don't know if that would teach any other lesson other than telling the politicians, try and keep the military under control. But the other bit that I think it would also hopefully teach is that you shouldn't exploit religious identities in mobilizing people because what I didn't want to talk about was how Imran Khan has also used religion to tell people that he's a good Muslim 
that's why he's saying that's why he wanted a jihad against the police coming in to arrest him. Yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, do you think uh, that uh, Australia's uh, foreign policy development assistance has dropped the ball with respect to Pakistan? They seem to have had good programs in the past, perhaps 10, 15 years ago. Now it seems to me that there's more focus on the Pacific and perhaps even more recently with India that uh, Pakistan being a, f uh, a fragile state, not yet a failed state, and the West not wanting it to fail, uh, that uh, we should be more focused on uh, on Pakistan and, and perhaps uh, uh, Afghanistan still as well? Uh, I don't know if Australia has dropped the ball. I think Australia has been, Australian foreign policy towards South Asia, as you mentioned, has been more India focused. Mm -hmm. uh, and because as a member of the Quad, Australia has sort of signed a, a number of agreements with India but also as a sense that somehow, as a you know, very strongly emerging global power, it's in Australia's interest to establish closer links with India. Now, India doesn't need assistance as Pakistan does. You know, India was in that position in 1991, where it was only left with three weeks worth uh, import money. Pakistan is there at the moment. And I think at that time, India was okay with getting help. I think Pakistan does need to be supported. But uh, I wouldn't just say blanket yes support. I mean, Australian government is running some projects. Uh, if you look at a number of uh, recent high commissioners, they have done a lot of work. Our current high commissioner, Neil Hawkins, who's been running quite a, he's been very actively promoting what Australia has done to help uh, Pakistan. But I think Pakistan or anyone else, sorry, Australia or anyone else, can't really support Pakistan if Pakistan is not willing to support itself. You know, it's simple fact that if the country or the rich people in the country are not willing to accept the costs, pay the taxes, strengthen the state, you can't expect outsiders to help. And in fact, this reluctance you can see also in case of now Saudi Arabia and Emiratis. Previously, you'd go to Saudis and, you know, if the money was really dwindling, one minister would go or the prime minister would go or the chief of army staff would go and they'll put few billions in Pakistan's account and that would sustain Pakistan. Now, they're also saying, work out an agreement with IMF, put in those limits that are needed to run Pakistan's economy properly, and then we support you. Or we will invest, but we won't just give you the money. So I think, I'm not saying Australia shouldn't be supporting Pakistan, I think, is that mine? It is 7.46, that means? That means I have to have my medicine. <laughs> I learned very well not to put my hand in the lady's bag. <laughs> I'm not going to start Actually, doing that. I thought I had stopped it, but obviously <laughs> it didn't work. What are you going to find? It's very funny. <laughs> I don't have my medicine, so I can't have that either. <laughs> it's that the ISI calling you. <laughs> uh, 
I don't think so yet. <laughs> <laughs> but they were, I mean, they have, they have in times, but sadly they've said that, or oh, you're saying something that we would like you to say. Oh no, you're, for, you're suggesting things along the lines that we prefer, and I think, oh my God, there's a problem here. <laughs> so, no. But really, basically, what my simple answer is, yes, Pakistan needs help. Uh, Pakistan, I think, a solution with IMF, bailing Pakistan out now is probably necessary, because if it does, doesn't happen, the more Pakistan slides economically towards the, you know, even less than three billion or two billion, people would get angry, and then this idea of default would come in. And some people are already saying in Pakistan that's okay for Pakistan to default, because other people have the money, so the state would rearrange its uh, loans with outsiders, but I think IMF needs to provide that assistance now, but Pakistan has to also address its issues. Because the waste of money, I think, is huge. And maybe that's where my sort of sense of, my idea of citizens taking responsibility comes in. You can't expect others to support if you're not willing to support yourself. And it applies to the current government. It's apparent they have got 77 people in the ministerial setup. And they all have perks. <coughs> Imagine the amount of money. So no work is done anyway, so they could cut it down and then there'll be some money left. And then of course Australia can give some more money. I think we've reached time, but I've got one final question, if you don't mind, Samina. We haven't touched on it. Um, as Pakistan sort of struggles with its domestic polity and uh, instability, it's obviously ability to influence um, the region and, and the world becomes much uh, more um, difficult. How does, a bit of crystal ball here, but how does Pakistan's sort of emptying of its space it has traditionally played as a balancer in the region, uh, not just India-Pakistan, but India-Pakistan um, and Iran and Afghanistan and China, um, that leaves a bit of a void and, and, and how do you feel that the dynamics of the region are impacted by Pakistan's I guess, focus on its domestic politics. Let me, okay, I think Pakistan's failure to really address its own internal problems need to be seen in conjunction with India's rise as a regional power, as, or nearly as a global power. So in that scenario, while previously Pakistan was, for example, playing a role in the Gulf states, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran as well, uh, or even calling the shots in terms of India's engagement in OIC or lack of engagement. Because now the balance has tilted way far against Pakistan, Pakistan's ability to do that has really been severely affected. Uh, even the more recent agreement or the resumption of diplomatic ties between Iran and Saudi Arabia with the help of Chinese, Pakistani, there's some voices that are saying they're taking credit for it and saying they were the ones who 
worked with China and that's how it all happened. But the reality is that Pakistan standing in the regional context as well has been impacted and its capacity to play the role that it started playing say from 70s onwards is being impacted. And again, it goes back to the fact that Pakistan isn't focusing on its own internal problems. Mm -hmm. But there are some people who are beginning to talk about it and saying Pakistan's foreign policy so far has predominantly been shaped by a sense of assumed equality vis-a-vis -vis India, but also the demand that it must be heard on the same way as the Indians would be heard and that Pakistan needs to become more realistic about its standing. And Pakistan needs to meddle where it really has some reason to. And that also means divesting itself of the idea that somehow Afghanistan is its backyard. Uh, there are people who are talking about that. So it's not that no one in Pakistan is thinking about it. But I think unless the government empower the politicians, and the military come on the same page and say, yes, we need a different tack on foreign policy because we need the peace in the region so that we can develop economy or we need to focus also on economy so that our foreign standing is increased. Unless that precondition is met, I think Pakistan would further lose its influence. Already Saudis, you know, I was reading somewhere Professionals were getting, Pakistani professionals used to get a lot of jobs in Saudi Arabia and in Emirates. Now relatively, especially in the Emirates, it's changing. So Pakistani professionals get less jobs, whereas Indians get more. So already that's happening. So I think Pakistan, there needs to be a serious self-reflection in Pakistan, both in terms of how the political system is being run the role of the elite, uh, their idea of what it means to be a Pakistani, and then their idea of what Pakistan means at the global level. Then I think we'll see a different face.